Well, on the Christian calendar, this, is to, uh, this month is the season referred to as Epiphany. The reason that the church would snag segments of the calendar and have special emphases during those times was because the world, for the most part, the ancient world was illiterate. People didn't read. And if they could read, their access to books or scrolls was very limited. And so most people had to memorize things. Or they would come to church and hear scripture and they would memorize it. Uh, that's why we have liturgy. Liturgy is really just a bunch of scriptures thrown together. And the reason people did liturgy in the church was that was their access to the scriptures. Or they would uh, have seasons where they would talk about different aspects of the Christian story. Like Advent, where we talk about the coming of Christ and his future coming. Then Epiphany is really talking about the revelation or how God loves to display his life and his power or show his life and his power in the lives of people, Epiphany. And then we have uh, other seasons that we celebrate. And the reason they did that was for the church to stop and to remember the story that we're part of. Not unlike if you're out in the woods and you pull out your GPS or your compass, you're trying to figure out where you are to orient yourself to where you are. That's where we talk about these things so we can orient ourselves to where we are in the story. And also to remember, have this idea, not just of recalling, but of the the notion of remembering in the ancient world meant to make it present. It was more than just recalling. It was as they wanted to relive the story. That's why when we do communion and we take the bread and we break it and we take the cup, we're not just trying to recall. We're trying to make present The fact that he has died for us and shed his blood for us. And in that moment, we remember, we let it resonate. We try to make it present. We try to relive the moment. So that's why these things are talked about, so that the church can focus on what's most important. When we talk about epiphany, generally speaking, the word epiphany just means a sudden insight or or sudden kind of revelation. It's, It's what happens to you if you're watching... A, a complex plot of a movie and you're trying to figure out what's going on and then at some point in the movie you go, oh, oh that's, it's like an aha moment. Oh, I see it. I see it is an, a, a phrase of epiphany. Um, the idea that God loves to be caught is very present in Scripture. God loves us to catch him. The biggest way God was caught in the world is through Jesus Christ. Jesus, in our story, is the great epiphany of God to the world. He uh, burst into the world and, and gave us the face of God. There were, there were lots of confusing images of God in the ancient world, all kinds of ways that, that God appears and shows himself or reveals himself. Jesus clears all that up. When we see Jesus, we see God as he is. Um, you remember Jesus one time said, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father, right? So here's a text in Hebrews 1 that's interesting about this. It's Hebrews 1. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, the prophet, through the prophets at many times in various ways. In other words, it's like these breadcrumbs that lead us to things as, as, you, as you experience life in the Old Testament. They didn't have things really clear, but God was sort of showing himself in bits and pieces. But then it says, But in these days, these last days, he's spoken to us, the idea here is directly, by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. That'd be like saying, if God is the light, Jesus is the bright. He's the radiance of his glory. That'd be like saying, if God was water, if we could say God is water, Jesus is the wet. That he, he goes on here to say, is the exact 
representation of his being. So Jesus comes to us and reveals to us the epiphany of Jesus is this is what God is like. But God doesn't just want to reveal himself in the context of Jesus. He, Jesus, comes into our lives. So he, by, by matter of reason, is that he's actually in our lives. Jesus, we invite into our lives. So he is in us. And God wants us to discover him in the context of our everyday, boring, mundane lives. Butcher Baker, Candlestick Baker, God wants to be in your life. He is in your life. And interestingly, even though he's in, a, in our lives, this is kind of a confusing comment, but it's nonetheless claimed that even though God wants us to find him, he loves to hide. In fact, I would suggest to you that he is the original creator of the hide-and-seek game. The reason he says for us to seek him is because he hides. In fact, this tradition of thought is rich in the Bible. Uh, in Jesus, when Jesus was uh, coming into the world and as he's beginning to share with people, you remember uh, some people would try to guess who he was and sometimes the demons would even say, you're the Christ, however they talked. You're the Christ. So, and remember what Jesus said? Shh, quiet. Don't say anything. Why? Because Jesus, the Messiah, it was called the Messiah's secret. That's what theologians call it. The Messiah's secret. Why? Because God loves to hide. Look at this text. This is uh, Isaiah 45. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself. (laughs) The God and Savior of Israel. He does this. He hides. One time Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And as he was walking, this is after the resurrection. He's walking with the two apostles And as he's walking with them, the Bible says explicitly that Jesus prevented them from recognizing him. Now, why would God do that? Here's a more provocative question. What if God's doing that in your life right now? What if he really is working in your life, but he's preventing you from seeing him? What if he really is working in your marriage? What if he really is working in your singlehood? What if he really is messing with you? You just don't recognize him. Say, well, why would he do that? Because he loves to mess with us. I I don't really know the answer. That's one of the questions I want to ask him. But for whatever reason, God chose for this world to be a world living by faith. Which means there's a certain unknowing about it. Even when you think you're discovering. And he wants you to discover. In fact, look at this text. This is Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with enough energy, with your heart. And watch this. I will be found by you. In other words, he rigs the game. It's like when, and I think it's age appropriate. You know, when you're, you ever play hide and seek with your children when they're little, you, the hide is easier. You know, if, I, if for a little toddler, if they're right here, here's how I'd hide. Okay, I'm hiding. <laughs> you know, it's appropriate, right? Because if you hide out of sight, you disappear for a toddler. You no longer exist, right? That's, or, you know, anyway, you know. Psychology. The point is, is that as they get older, you hide hide harder. Some of you, God's hiding so hard and you're thinking he's left you. He hasn't. He's just expecting more out of you. You need to up your seek. Up your seek. He's there. He's in your life. That's the story that we're part of. That's what, that's what the scripture claims. And, but even when we find him, God designed this thing that even when you find him, it's a little iffy. Because it's almost like He's just enough in the light that you know he's there, but it's so shadowy you're not sure it was him. That's how God does stuff. Seldom does he do things where it's absolute. Because, because we, won't, we don't get to see it really till the end of the story where we see him face to face. Paul alluded to this when he made the statement. He says, we see through a glass darkly, but then... 
face to face. Right? That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. We see through a glass how? Darkly, opaquely. So even what we see is a little shadowy. One day we'll see face to face. But why is it shadowy? For some reason, God loves it to present it so that in your mind, your natural mind would say, is it? I think it's God, but maybe it's not. He wants you to do that so that in your heart you choose. I wish he wouldn't do that. I wish he would just do it. I mean, right? Just just for a minute, just appear. Okay, got it. But he doesn't want to do that. In fact, I I love this... uh, this old statement by Blaise Pascal. All of you have encountered Blaise, 16th century. Most of you have encountered him through mathematics and high school algebra. But he was also a philosopher, theologian. He wrote this. He said, quote, If God had wished to overcome the obstinacy of the most hardened, he could have done so by revealing himself to them so plainly that they could not doubt the truth of his essence. But... He chooses to be recognized only by those who sincerely sought him. There's enough light for those who desire only to see, but enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. End quote. In other words, God makes it messy on purpose. Here's another modern quote. This is, this is from Dallas Willard, who is a brilliant uh, philosopher, theologian in the modern day. He's still alive wrote a brilliant book called, if you're interested in it, called um, The Divine Conspiracy. Excellent book. Uh, Anyway, he wrote this. I think this is a quote from The Conspiracy. He says, the issue is, what do we want? The Bible says that if you seek God with all your heart, then you will surely find him. Surely find him. It's the person who wants to know God that God reveals himself to. And if a person doesn't want to know God, well, God has created the world and the human mind in such a way that he doesn't have to. End quote. This is the world in which we live. Where, what I'm trying to suggest to you is God wants to be known by you. He wants this to be a time of epiphany. He wants you to see stuff. He wants you to get stuff from him. But, and not only does he want you to get stuff, he wants you to know his will for you. I mean, this is the claim. You've got to decide whether you believe it or not. The claim is, you're not an accident. The claim is, God knew you were coming before your mom. You might have been a surprise to mom and dad. You weren't a surprise to God. God imagined you. The scripture tells us that he chose the time in history in which we'd be born and the place which we'd be born. Some has said that God even knew the days that you would have before you even had one of those days. Which means... You are a dream of God come true. So, if that's true, if you buy that, how do you begin to approach that? I think God wants you to know his will. I think God wants us to know his will. That's why he says in Ephesians 5, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, how do you do that? Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. What I want to talk to you about is this idea of the epiphany of God's will. Discovering God's will in your life. And I think this is a question that should concern us. Not haunt us, but concern us. What is God's will? What does God want you to do? Now, believers throughout history have found some secrets that uncover that. Understand, uncovering it, I have to contextualize that to say, you have a sense of it. Most of the time, God doesn't speak that clearly to us. Because he wants things in the realm of faith. Unless he wants you to do something really strange. 
right? Like go to Zimbabwe and start a school. I mean, if you're going to do something really different out of context of what you'd ever discover in your life, God oftentimes speaks to people. A lot of times people get calls, but they're unusual things usually. Most of the time, most of us don't hear much or we get a word of the Lord, a word from the Lord, like water. What does that mean? Water can mean a lot of things. Drink water, water the lawn. She broke her water. Right? So sometimes even when God gives you a sense, you've got to try to contextualize it over time. What I'm trying to suggest to you is, God wants you to see as well. God wants to speak to you, but don't think it's going to be all that explicit, which leads me to what are the secrets? How do you begin to understand? How do you begin to begin to, to unearth or discover God's dream for your life? Starting place for the church historically, when it comes to God's will, has always been sacred text. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, right? (coughs) Somehow, when you listen to or read or hear through preaching like this, when you hear or listen to the scriptures, they mess with you. They they, they do stuff in us. They, They start eliciting like an appropriate fear of God, a respect, a reverence for God. Not only that, they start causing us, without trying to, cause us to grow in holiness, um, uh, it's like taking a piece of uranium and sticking it in your pocket. It will mess with you. You don't even have to make it mess with you. It will mess with you. That's somehow when you approach the sacred text with an openness, it starts messing with you. You start having an increase of holiness. And what I mean by holiness, the scripture doesn't mean, you know, external things like, you know, wearing weird clothes or, or, or not wearing weird clothes or, you know, not smoking or chewing, hanging around with folks. That do. It's not just external things, even though it might affect external things. What holiness is, is a different way of living from the inside. It's a different way of responding to life. It's you are different. In fact, the word holy means different. You and I are supposed to be different. We hate that because we don't want to be different. We want to fit in. And being different can get you in trouble. Remember Cain and Abel. Right? If you're different, especially if you're doing what's right and you're doing it in some kind of a holy way, what ends up happening is some people who aren't right will hate you for it. So get ready, get ready, get ready to be hated if you want to be a Christian. Not because you're a toad. Not because you're a jerk. There are some Christians that are hated because they're jerks, and we should hate them. It's appropriate. (laughs) At least what they do, right? But I'm talking about you live in a way where you're just different in the world. Jesus said it this way. He said, I want to put you in my mouth. I want you to be my voice piece. He said that to the church in Revelations. I want to be able to use you. I want to be able to speak to you. But you, you can't be lukewarm. I need you to be hot about some things. I need you to be cold about some things. But if you're lukewarm, I can't use you. I can't speak. It, it's like if you take a hot cup of water and we put it in this room and we leave it for several hours, what happens to it? It starts to become the same temperature as its environment. It starts to become... Lukewarm. If I take a cold glass of water that could be refreshing, but I leave it in here for hours and it doesn't, and I don't do anything with it, what ends up happening is it starts to take on the same temperature as its environment. When it becomes the same temperature as its environment, it becomes lukewarm. It makes no difference. It's the same as. It's not different than. And what Jesus said, listen, if you're not hot about some things, if you're not cold about other things, I can't. And you're lukewarm, I've got to spit you out. You're not refreshing. You're not different. 
I can't speak through your life. You must be different. When you approach the scriptures, you start becoming hot about some things, cold about other things. You start becoming different about how you respond to rejection, promotion, money, sexuality, all these things that are in your mind and how you may have just modeled your culture. You stop modeling the culture because you found a different way to think about it. You start becoming a new person. You start becoming God's will. There's a verse in in 2 Timothy that says all scripture is God-breathed. If you ever, you know, if you're with your wife or husband and if you're close enough to feel their breath or with maybe a child or a grandchild and you're holding them and you're close enough to feel their breath, there's something... There's something very intimate about that. There's something very close about that. What what, what the scripture is saying is, when when you take scripture, or when you listen to it in moments like this, somehow when you pull it close and you have an open heart, it's like you can feel his breath. That's why sometimes when you're, if you're listening to preaching, and something touches you. I've had people tell me, oh my gosh, it was like you were following me around this week, and you were saying things that that I was thinking. It was so intimate. It was, I don't know how you... Could, how it touched me. Well, it's because it's God's word. And somehow you were, it touched you, it breathed on you. And there's such a moment of intimacy and openness. He says, scriptures like that was what Paul claimed. It's God breathed and it's useful. You can learn, you can get rebuked. Ouch. You can be corrected, trained in righteousness. Why? So that as a servant of God, you may be thoroughly equipped for good work. Everybody say good work. It's, it, good work is the work of creation. It's when God took chaos and darkness over the surface of the deep and he began to speak to it until after he spoke to it, he began to say at each stage, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Why? Because it was moving forward. Every time we do good, every time we we participate in doing something appropriately, doing works of righteousness, that's what he said there. He said it's, it's training in righteousness. What is righteousness? It's doing right. It's doing the right thing. It's the thing that peace, it's the stuff peace is made of. Because peace is when everything is appropriate. You want more peace in your life? Righteousness is the scepter of God's kingdom. You want more of God's kingdom in your life? It's learning to do good instead of ungood. It's learning to enter the trajectory of creation where we're participating in God's goodness and it spills into our marriage, into our friendships, into our jobs. And somehow the kingdom begins to be expressed. See, well, that starts... With scripture. Scripture puts forth ethical principles and articles of belief. And if you discover scripture, you'll discover faith and discover hope and discover love. And you know what? You'll just be better off. Your life will be sweeter. Now, even though scripture is important, there's been abuse here. Because some have been drilled and almost condemned by folks who say, you got to read your Bible every day. You got to read your Bible every day. Now, I, I love it that the scriptures are accessible to us and to whom much is given, much is required. I'm not saying you shouldn't read your scripture every day. But it shouldn't be a thing where you're condemned over. And, you know, we preachers, we tend to be one of the, some of the best condemners. We love to make you do what we get paid to do. <laughs> right? But, but <clears throat> what I'm trying to suggest to you is, is that I do not think that everyone has to be a Bible scholar. 
And I would suggest, in fact, let me say this again, I I referred to it earlier, but historically, most people in the world have been illiterate. There's still millions that are illiterate. It cannot be possible that you have to sit down and read the Bible every day to have a robust spiritual life. There must be other ways to focus on the Bible or on Scripture or the truth of Scripture without just sitting and reading it. And lo and behold, when you look at the Bible, that's exactly what happens. And you see the stories, that's exactly what's going on. Jesus, even though he preached a lot of actual Scripture texts, there were as much of the time you find him basically talking about everyday circumstances from people's lives and somehow couching it to show a spiritual truth. He'd, he'd talk, for instance, about this, this farmer who takes the seed and scatters it. And he talked about how the ground was receptive to the seed. So that while a person saw a farmer, or if they were a farmer, and they were actually doing it, they would remember the truth Jesus was trying to bring out. So they were actually meditating on the word while they're doing something natural. Or you read Jesus talking about the lost coin. Everybody's lost money and how they look for it. He talks about uh, the pearl before swine, which is a farming comment. Or he talks about, <coughs> about the leaven that leavens the, 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 the dough or about the prodigal son. All of us hear these stories. They're so familiar. And he was saying, listen, these stories tell a great spiritual truth so that when we encounter stories like that, we can meditate in the word while we're living without having to sit down and read a scroll. Great story. Jesus looked at the son one time in Matthew 5. He said, see that son? He said, he said That's, the father sends that. And you, you know how the son is reckless? How it just gives to everybody? It's incautious. It just sheds light on the bad guy and the good guy and the righteous person and the unrighteous person. It's just, it just sheds its goodness on everybody. He said, you're most like your father when you're like the son. When you recklessly, incautiously give good to people and celebrate people and love people. See, so now when the person's just looking at the sun, they can meditate in scripture without having to read that verse. See, what I'm trying to, I'm not trying to diminish your appreciation of scripture. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that you can participate in God's word without always overtly reading it. And that if you learn that, God can begin to speak to your life. You can begin to soak in scripture and not have to sit down and trying to find time to read it all the time. Classic example. I'm, I'm, <coughs> this was back, excuse me, I'm just getting over a cold. Uh, we just got back. Um, anyway, I, 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 what had happened was I, I was, it was one day, this was years ago. I was um, about to go into my study time. And study time for me has always been very important because I talk so much. So I'm about ready to go into my study time and prayer time. I'd been with Gail all morning. And uh, uh, as I was about ready to go downstairs to get into that, I got the kids down. This was my day off, and I got the kids down for bed, and I was ready to go do some stuff. Gail said, oh, honey, I got a real bad headache. Would you please rub my neck? Well, I'm thinking, I've been a dad all day. I've been nice all day. I need to go pray. (laughs) Right? And so, you want me to rub your neck? Sure. (laughs) I mean, I just wasn't in the mood for this, you know, rubbing the neck thing. So I, so I dutifully said, okay, and shrugged it. And I went around, I'm, I'm rubbing the back of her neck, trying to get rid of this headache, and I felt God's presence come in the room. Like when we were worshiping, or when I'd been praying, I felt God's presence. And I thought to myself, what are you, what are you doing here? Why is your presence here like this? And I heard in my heart something to the effect that I love to be present in these kinds of things. I, in a very real way, I had limited God to only being in my life when I prayed, when I read the Bible, when I did Christian stuff. I'd segmented my life. 
And, and he said, it was almost like he was saying, I want to be present in other ways. I'm sitting down months later. <clears throat> I'm sitting down at the, at the, uh, uh, on the sofa, and I was reading the Bible. I was doing some stuff and studying. And Michael, who's my oldest, who was really little, he was only about a year old, a little bit more than that. He's bringing a ball. Now, it was a little ball, but you know, when you're little, the ball's huge. So he's bringing this ball to me, and he sets it down. I'm thinking, I got to read the Word of God, kid. <laughs> Be gone. I have no time for thee. But, but, I, but as I did that, I remember thinking, this thought came to me. I thought, you know, I bet I'd grow as much in my faith if I sat down and played with this kid as if I'm reading this Bible. At first, I thought that was the devil thought. Because I was brought up on read the Bible, read the Bible all the time. So I remember I set the scriptures down, and I, and, I, and I went and I sat down on the floor. I started rolling this ball. Now, it was his whole world. Whoa. You know, he's catching, ha, 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 he's giving it back to me. And it was like it consumed his whole world. But I was using like almost no brain activity. I was dumbing down to ultimate dumb to play this game of roll the ball. And I'm thinking, this is so stupid. I'm doing nothing profitable. And yet in that moment, I thought, this is exactly what happens every time, every time God interacts with me. He must dumb down considerably. <laughs> And all of a sudden, in that moment of playing with my child, I was meditating in the Word. And it made sense to me. In everything that you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. I dare you to try this. Take showers in the name of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? <coughs> wash your dishes in the name of Jesus. Do the... Do the, do the, do the uh, Vacuuming in the name of Jesus. God, just suck up the dirt in my soul, I pray. <laughs> just whatever you're doing when you're working. The Bible says actually do your work as unto the Lord. That you're to somehow not do it for boss, not do it for money, but do it as unto the Lord. That somehow when you, when you, when you live your life, if you're a boss, you're to act as though you were the man, like Christ in their lives, blessing them, caring for them, caring for their growth, challenging them. It, all these images are giving us. Why? Because we're supposed to be meditating in the Scripture all the time, not necessarily reading it all the time. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out is that, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to diminish Scripture, but I'm saying to you that Scripture is not limited to being written on a page. In fact, look at this text. This is 2 Corinthians 3. You show, Paul says, and you make obvious that you guys are actually Scripture. You guys are a letter from Christ delivered by us. It's not written with ink. It's not just Bible verses on pages. It's Bible verses in hearts. You have been written with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So if you want to discover <clears throat> God's will for your life, the first place to come is the Scripture. The second place you need to do, once you start interacting with Scripture and it messes with you, is you need to start talking to God more. Everybody say, pray. pray. Now I'm going to give you six. It'll only be five minutes, but six things. That will help you when it comes to prayer. The first thing is adoring prayer. Everybody say adoring. What do I mean by adoring prayer? You're not coming to God and saying, God, I want this, I want this, I want this. No, this is coming to God asking nothing. This is just simply coming to God and enjoying his presence. It might be during a worship song where all of a sudden you start feeling his presence. And instead of singing, you stop. And just for a moment, you just adore that presence. Madame Guyon, whose name was Jean Guyon, she lived in the uh, 1600s. She wrote this. This is from the 1600s. Quote, you begin by setting aside a time to be with the Lord. She's talking about adoring prayer. When you do, come to him. 
come quietly. Turn your heart to the presence of God. How is this done? It's quite simple. You turn to him by faith. By faith you believe you have come into the presence of God. Next, while you're before the Lord, just begin to read some portion of scripture. As you read, pause. The pause should be quite gentle. You have passed so that you may set your pause so that you may set your mind on the spirit. You've not, you've set your mind inwardly on Christ. While you're before the Lord, hold your heart in his presence. How? This you also do by faith. Yes, by faith, you hold your heart in the Lord's presence. Now, waiting before him, turn all your attention to your spirit. Do not allow your mind to wander. If your mind begins to wander, just turn your attention back again to the inward parts of your being. You will be brought near to God. It's just an example of adoring prayer. If you never do this, God won't be very real to you. You won't begin to see things. Epiphanies won't happen. You need to learn adoring prayer. The second one is, and all of you most know this, is praise. Everybody say praise. <laughs> this, is, this is not asking God for anything either. But this is... Looking at God in some way until you're wowed. It's, I, I, I've always heard about the Grand Canyon all my life. I saw pictures of it. I imagined it. But a few years ago, first time, only time, I, we went to the Grand Canyon. I remember stepping over to the very edge. It was one of those cliffs that went out and they had a little rope. And I stepped over to the very edge when I went there. Without trying, without conjuring it up, I went, whoa. See, the whoa came out of me because of the canyon. The canyon demanded the whoa. See, it just came out of me. Well, see, when you think about God, the universe, what he's done, what the promises are, as crazy as they sound, having no beginning, having no end, all those kind of things, you, at some point you start going, whoa, that's praise. It's important that you add praise into your life. Then there's this horrible thing for Americans, <coughs> thanks. We don't like to give thanks. We think we owe owed everything. But we should give thanks for all the good. How many of you glad you woke up this morning? How many of you glad you actually have food? How many glad we're warm? How many glad you're not, you know, I mean, just thank God for everything we have. Not only for what we have and who we are, but we should be thankful for the fact that Jesus came for us. It's the idea of thanksgiving. Then there's this gnarly one called <coughs> the prayer of repentance. Everybody say repent. Repentance means you come to God and you say, yes, it's true. I'm an idiot. It's true. We are stupid. We act weird. We act wrongly. And you come to God, you used to be honest about it. God, I'm an idiot and I will continue to be one without your help. And in that moment, you also say, God, you, you, need, to do, you need to do reparations if you need to, if you need to make things right. I mean, if I steal $50 out of, <coughs> out of Lathan's you know, wallet and I come to the Lord, I say, Lord, you know, forgive me for stealing $50 out of Lathan's wallet. Chances are the Lord will say, give it back. So repentance sometimes means you have to do restitution. And, and it also means, God, I've I got to be honest, I'm going to steal more money if I don't deal with why I'm stealing this money to begin with. So you have to start dealing with the notion of amending your life. That's all in the prayer of repentance. Somehow as you pray these kinds of prayers, something begins to happen to you. The last two, number five, is intercession. Everybody say intercession. That means talking to God about your stuff. Saying to God, God, this is how I feel. This is what's going on. God, I need you to move for this to change. I'm not getting along with my oldest son. I need you to start dealing with that relationship. Lord, <clears throat> I think I need more money because I spend more than I have. Now, chances are when you talk to him about that, he'll talk to you about what you're spending it on. Right? But intercession is talking to God about your stuff. 
if what God wants you to talk to him about your stuff. And then the last one, number six, is a weird word. It's called oblation. And what it means is the notion of sacrifice. It's the notion of you praying this prayer. God, I'm going into my world today and I'm offering myself. I'm offering my life. I'm offering my labor to you. I'm going into this meeting with these guys. And, and as I go into this, God, I offer you my life. I want my words and my heart to be in union with you. And I want to make sure that the purpose of Christ is not violated or somehow supported in my actions. That's the prayer of oblation. Now, why is this important? I'm telling you all this to simply say this to you. If you will approach the scriptures with an open heart, and if you will start talking to God about your life, it will so mess with you that you can begin then when you're messed with, when God deals with you, your life becomes valuable to him. And all of a sudden, I mean in terms of practice, I mean you're valuable to God if you're a total punk. If you never change, God still loves you. Right? How many of you are glad for that? You can be a total moron. God loves morons. But how many don't want to be a moron? How many would rather do something with your life? Right? Okay. So if you want your life to have meaning in the world, for you to fulfill God's purpose of why you're here, for you to fulfill the, what he wrote in the book for you, if you're going to fulfill that, if you let scripture mess with you and you, let, and you talk to God enough about your life where he's messing with you and you begin to say yes to the right things, wrong, no to the wrong things, all of a sudden you can start finding yourself magooing into God's perfect will. <coughs> For those of you who are too young to know magoo, you poor unfortunate souls. Magoo is an icon. He's this weird little old guy who can't see anything. But for some reason, he's incautious about walking and driving or whatever he does. He just storms into life. And when he's about ready to step off into oblivion, somehow, some circumstance changes where he doesn't. He steps to another dimension or whatever. He gets to the next level. He just never... Everything that needs to be in front of him comes in front of him. All he concerns himself with is walking. Now, I would suggest to you, it isn't until the end of the story, of the Magoo stories, and at the end of every cartoon, when, it's, when the name written, Mr. Magoo, got the two O's at the end, it's only till the end of the story. He comes walking and he's always kind of talking in tongues. And uh, he comes to the O's and he opens his eyes. and So he doesn't see till the end. But the notion here is what I'm suggesting to you, is that we, to get into God's will, can Magoo our way in. Let me show it to you. This is one verse. I'm done. In fact, let me have you stand so you think I'm done. <coughs> It's a preacher trick. <laughs> Read this with me. Let's get it up there. This is Proverbs chapter 3. Here it is. Read it with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Stop a minute. In all whose ways? In all your ways. Let me tell you something. A lot of people get paralyzed by the will of God because they want God to tell them exactly what to do. Tell me, God, am I supposed to go to college? Am I, am I supposed to marry Mary or Sue? Am I supposed to, am I supposed to work? I, I think I heard McDonald's, but is it McDonald's Douglas or McDonald's? You know, do you want me to go to Burger King today or Chick-fil-A? I mean, people, there's some people that are so freaked out about what God's will is. I am suggesting to you that you don't have to be freaked out at all. You be almost kind of reckless as long as in all your ways you acknowledge him. Your focus should be on him and on walking forward. And he will what? 
make your path straight. The King James says he'll direct your path. Oh, that used to mess with me. Because he's like, okay, God, direct my path. I can't do a thing. So here's what a lot of times what people do when they ask God to direct their path. They don't do anything. That's hard. They do stuff that's easy. Ask a young kid getting out of high school, are you going to college? Well, the Lord hasn't shown me yet. Well, has the Lord showed you to work in that dead-end job for the rest of your life? No. Well, why does he have to speak to you to go to college and not speak to you to do that? Well. <laughs> See, they want people to show them, God, show me who to marry. You know why you want God to show you who to marry? Because you're too afraid you're going to get rejected. Because if God shows you and you spiritually date in your mind, oh God, is it, it's her, I think it's her, she's so cute, I think it's her. Pray, pray, pray for six months and then come out to her and say, hello, my name is Ed. The Lord showed me I was supposed to marry you. Oh, er, er, er. See, then if you get rejected, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord because the Lord showed you. See, Christians a lot of times use their faith to skip. But when you get into scriptures and you start praying about your life, you start embracing things like perseverance, hard places, being diligent. You start facing things in a way where you're willing to take the hard route. You're willing to go back to school while you're working. You're willing to do it because God's empowering you because you know you have certain things in you that are good. You know you have a capacity to study. Maybe God did that on purpose. And you start, you start living because here's the bottom line. What I'm trying to suggest to you is God doesn't care as much about where you work as how you work. God doesn't care so much about who you marry as how you face marriage. In other words, you are the will of God more than what you do. And if you learn how to be the will of God, you will magoo your way into his perfect will for your life. See you later.